welcome everybody to another episode of Ten Thousand Roads Financial Independence. Today I have Zasha Smith. She is current owner of ten rental units, currently cash flow more than ten k per month. She's been using various different strategies to acquire her portfolio of rentals. She's also currently doing flips. She's got six flips going on in various locations: Hawaii, Colorado, Georgia, Arizona. We'll get into that a little bit more in detail as well. She is also a partner on the 110-unit property syndication.、Uh, she's Hawaiian German. She's quit her job in 2020, and、uh, past life is a civil engineer for over 10 years. So we're gonna dive into her transition into a investor from a full-time employee over here in this. Episode. Welcome to our show today, Zasha. Thank you for having me on and reaching out. I'm really excited to share my story, and I love investing. So anytime I get to talk about real estate and nobody's annoyed, then I'm all about it. <laughs> That's awesome. And then today we have a lot to uncover. We want to kind of learn from Zasha. How do you actually fix and flip in multiple different locations, and also? How do you actually amass a ten property portfolio in nonetheless the most probably one of the most expensive real estate market, Hawaii, essentially? So, Sasha, walk us through a little bit more first to start. How does your journey being like turning from a regular employee to an investor? Well, starting off, I grew up in affordable housing. I was raised by a single mom.、Um, I'm the oldest of three kids, so a lot of the times we had to come up with ways as far as to make it work. You know, from a young age, we're selling candies, you know, doing car washes, and holding garage sales in elementary school. So, I've always had a knack for finding a way to kind of make. Some sort of income using the resources that we had. And when I was in high school, I went to Maui High School. One of my teachers had told me about, you know, asked me about going to college. I never thought that I could afford it. And at that time, they didn't have college fairs. They didn't have all this workshops and things like that that they do now for the kids that teach them about college. But he told me about financial aid, FAFSA, and coming from a small island, we weren't really exposed to a lot of that stuff. And、so after applying, I、uh, went to college at Cal State Long Beach. I wasn't essentially going into it for engineering, but I ended up being a counselor in the College of Engineering, helping out a bunch of people who were getting into engineering in their classes, and found out that I really liked math. So I was in doing a lot of psychology things and liberal arts. However, once my boss seen that I really had a knack for mathematics and science, he kind of pushed me towards that, taking those types of classes. From there, I was like, okay, if I really want to move back home to Maui and be able to afford it, you got to be a doctor, an engineer, a scientist, or something that、yeah. makes a lot of money. So I kind of curved into that career, started working, you know, the nine to five, and then. One day, I realized I was working over sixty hours on a salary, so that kind of alerted me to be like, okay, I know whatever I do, I always go all in and do my best. So right now, I'm already, I'm married, I have two kids, I'm in, you know, a great career. However, it's eating up all my time. I was missing out on my kids' events when we had deadlines.、I、started going in on Saturdays, and then. 
I found out that my boss was even going on Sundays. So I was like, oh my gosh, that's going to be my life is I'm going to be working seven days a week and I'm on a fixed salary. So that brought to my attention. Okay. I got to figure something else out. And I started, you know, just Googling simple things like how to get rich quick or, you know, it sounds silly right now, but it's just when you're in that moment, you're trying to get out of the rat race. And, um, a lot of things that came up was people in real estate or that owned real estate or had some type of investments in it. So that's when I started looking into, you know, owning rentals. How do you do it? Because right now I'm live, I was still living in Maui and I still am now, but it was hard enough for us to get our own home. So I was like, how do they, you know, get the money for rentals? They must be rich or something like that. And ended up going to my lender and finding out, oh my gosh, because we have good jobs, my husband owned his own plumbing company as well, mm-hmm. that we qualified for conventional loans to buy, you know, like up to 300000 So we started buying our first two projects were two small condos. Mm-hmm. And we kind of went from there. And because we already had our family and were pretty stable, we wanted to not take so much risk on buying a huge house and trying to fix it up. We kind of started small with the condos because you don't really have to worry about structural aspects or the exterior. You kind of just focus on the the interior design and renovations. So that's kind of how I started getting into it. And he was, he's a plumbing contractor. So Mm -hmm. I knew he had connections not to do things for free, but essentially if we ever needed help or ever needed somebody to sub in and out, we would have that as well. Yeah, yeah. I think in knowing who is really important in any business building. And we, funny enough, we started with a condo too, was our investment journey. So nothing wrong with condos. There's probably some inefficiency in cash flow over there with the HOAs, but um, it's a good place to start if uh, you want to kind of take small baby steps to start investing. So fast forward, you now have 10 rentals. Now, People is going to be asking about this when you're buying 200, 300K housing, at some point you're going to be running out of capital. And uh, so sounds like you're on a fixed rate salary, your husband have a job that may pay very well, or, you know, it has up and downs because it's small business. So how did you guys were able to afford buying one home after the other? Because most people kind of start tapping out around three, four properties. So we bought the first two using conventional loans. One we kept as a rental because it cash flowed and made sense at that time. And it was in like a C minus um, area. That's hard to believe in Maui. It is still yeah. oceanfront, but <laughs> the, the types of people that live in there are a lot of them are on rental assistance like Section 8 and HUD. Mm-hmm. And so even with the HOA, we bought it at around that one, we bought around 90,000. And um, our renters now pay 1800 a month and the HOA is about 600. So there is still a lot of meat on the bones when you are buying in, you know, more so affordable neighborhoods. Um, Mm -hmm. But the other condo that we bought was in the three, it was like a little over 300,000. It took us maybe about 40,000 to fix it up. And then we sold it at 489. So it's definitely a good spread for my first flip. And I had, I just used logic. A lot of people told me like, how did you know it was a deal? I said, I really didn't. I was kind of like going on bigger pockets, you know, looking up calculators and like just logistically, if I know something sold in there at like, you know, around 475 and I could purchase at 300, 
I mean, you gotta make money. There's going to be money made in that transaction. So you're just kind of using logics, even though I didn't really know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But from there, I joined a mentorship. So I bought my first to join a mentorship, uh, Ryan Pineda's Future Flipper program. And from there, I took off. It really gave me the confidence to know that I could scale and take on more. Taught me about the finances that there's, you know, private and hard money lenders and creative financing. There's different ways to and different types of loan products that you can get. I always just thought you have to use your own money or the bank's money. So that's kind of how I scaled up to purchasing my third property, all using private money. That was about 560. And what had happened was I was very active in the investing community here. I was going to everything, every fixer upper that was listed on the MLS, meeting as many people as I could, going to all the meetups, connecting with others, finding out, okay, how can I work together with them? Or I have the weekends, even though I'm working full time, you know, what can I do to help them? And I think that's really helped me to scale and just make genuine connections is adding value to somebody else first, and then them coming back to me. So my third property I bought all private money from another investor. So Mm -hmm. I had met him at a few of the foreclosures that were listed on the MLS. We had gone to a few together and built a relationship from there and then seen him at the meetup. And at one of the homes that we looked at, he was like, Hey, are you going to, you know, put a bid on this one? And I was like, I don't know. It's so much work. He's like, yeah, I'm thinking that too. Like I'm getting older. So he was in his early Mm fifties and he was told me that he's done with dealing with contractors. And he's one of those investors who likes to do kind of everything on his own, handle it that way. And so of course you're going to get run down and tired if you're trying to do everything by yourself. And so he said, man, I think maybe I'm going to start lending. And I was like, I'll take your money. (laughs) But I was serious and he knew that. So he he's like, no, for real. Like if I believe in you, I've seen, you know, proof of concept that you've had these wins purchasing your first couple of projects. And I like you, I want to help you out. And so when I purchased the third property, all private money, that was his first time lending too. So we kind of went through it together and seeing, you know, the benefits of doing it that way. And so even to this day, he still lends to me and he, lens fully from our projects. So, and then the whole premise was like how I'm buying, I'm still buying. right Yeah. Now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm still able to buy because you get tapped out. Yeah. So is he still currently lending to you then in terms of like, so that's kind of, you know, it's, it's really important to find people that you trust and then bring some repeat, right? Cause that makes the business a lot easier. And then now you have 10 rentals is the business any different from when you started your first two? Like, what are some of the stuff that you're doing to make this into a business versus, you know, just investing yourself? Yeah. So because I didn't, I knew I didn't want kind of employees or want to build like a huge flipping or huge wholesaling company. I wanted to kind of stay small and have that flexibility because I do have my two kids. I want to continue to be there for them. And I gave up so much while I was working my job and trying to invest when I first started out that I started partnering. So that's how I'm able to scale now and do so many projects. 
um, all across the country is that people come to me, especially if they are on their last leg, a lot of partnerships that I have now is it's 50, 50 equity. And they know that, and they're like, Zosh, we still want to do this deal, but you know, we're tapped out on money. If you can just bring the gap funding, or you can connect us with someone or, you know, find a solution for us to get this project like we don't mind splitting equity so those are the types that i'm getting into now because i want to be less hands-on with fix and flips that i have on maui it's hard not to be because it's so close that you're like okay yeah. i'll just go run and do this or i'll i'll just run by the project and do that but so it's hard to stay away and that's what i'm gearing towards how i'm scaling and really just turning into a business of making connections and networking be of value to people that way. And of course, that's not really measurable. I mean, it is in how many you get, but that's why I focus so much on social media and getting myself out there and showing people, hey, these are the types of projects I'm doing. If you need help with lending or you need help with any sort of management or you're just starting out, I don't mind partnering with people who one have like a good track record. And even when you're starting out, you don't have any projects. Mm -hmm. However, if you are in a, a great job, you have the deal, you've analyzed it. I know people and in many markets that could confirm the numbers. And from there, that's how I kind of trust, but verify and then move forward with partnering with them. So I actually through different mentorships, and this is why I like joining mentorships, masterminds. I don't mind paying to go to these different events because Mm -hmm. I could make a connection that could make me, you know, six figures. So that's worth it all in the end. And and that's probably why you go to collective genius is to rub shoulders or be around those types of people and say, Hey, this is what I'm good at. If you ever need help, like I'm here. And that's what's honestly helped me gain momentum in, in moving forward is just making those connections and telling people what I'm trying to achieve or what my goals are and them wanting to help and vice versa. Yeah, that's amazing. Just through networking that you can actually create wealth. It is all part of the mindset, etc. So you talked about networking and social media. So I'm going to ask two questions over here. Let's kind of switch gear a little bit into marketing. What do you think makes your social media strategy very successful? Can you share like a couple of tips with um, people who just started into social media? Because a lot of people would say, well, social media, they don't, they don't really pay, right? So like, how did you actually use that to advantage in investing? Mainly, it's always showing up and being active and engaging. So initially, when I started, Instagram has been my focus and it really is where a lot of people still manage their own accounts or look into it, right? It's not a third party person or a lot of people have people on their team helping with social media, but they still check it. So Mm -hmm. once I figured that out, I said, Hey, oh my gosh, like even Brandon Turner checks his own messages. And now they have like primary general, they have different categories where you can place people so you can see or watch them. And it's been very integral in making connections, but also growing. So every time I post, I try to think, okay, what do my viewers want to see? What if I was just getting started or wanted to know something, I post that versus posting what I think 
I want to post. So mm-hmm. if I'm like, oh my gosh, I really love this project and I want to post all about what I'm doing, I kind of take a step back and say, okay, what does my audience want to see? And that's how I've been able to grow. And then also engaging with people if they ask any questions or message me like, hey, I have this much money, you know, what should I do? I let them know this is what I did. Bigger Pockets is out there for free, but there's a lot of paid mentorships if you want to cut the learning curve. So it all depends on their goals. And I feel like when you come from a genuine place of helping, just like the networking, that people see that and they like to hear stories, right? I have a really good story of coming from the bottom now, not necessarily to the top, but climbing my way through perseverance without any money, you know, making connections and just truly being myself. And I have been, you know, blessed to have those connections and meet people and also build wealth along the way. And so I like to tell different parts of the story too, because I feel like I've come full circle in the fact that I grew up, I grew up in affordable housing. And then now I have renters that are on section eight or HUD majority of them until I started, you know, doing the short-term rentals. But I always like to reiterate that you can give back while growing your own wealth. And a lot of people don't realize that they think investors are just in it for the money, or they're just trying to do things for themselves, but you can still help others get either get started on their wealth journey or help by adding, you know, being a landlord that will take people that have rental assistance because it is extra work, but showcasing that on social media, telling people what you're doing, all not only the good stuff, but the hard stuff, you know, that you go through a day in the life. People are just curious, like, oh, what is a day? She owns these rentals and has these flips. Like, what is her day like? So people, a lot of people are just kind of curious. And the more that you show in real life what you're doing, they can connect with that. And then from there, it leads to, I've had deals brought to me through social media. Anytime I put a post about lending, like, Hey, do you have this much in your savings? If you're looking for a better return, let's connect. And people have, I've got money through there. And then also just opportunities, right? The Maui mastermind is coming up and messaged me individually. And I'm pretty sure he probably messaged a bunch of people, but he messaged me, inviting me to it. So I was like, okay, that's really neat that we can connect through social media and make these genuine, real connections with people that we think are, you know, too high level for us or at a, at a place that we can't be. But social media brings an aspect where like anybody is like touchable, right? Cause we think, right. oh, you know, we can't almost like celebrity status. Deal. Yes. Yeah. Social media yeah. has that persona sometimes. Right. Right. But you can show your real you. You know, you don't have to always be clean cut. And for me, I'm not the best speaker, but I'm just, I feel like I'm just real and telling my story. And that's what people connect with. And so that's how we form, you know, mutually beneficial relationships. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, is there any tips on frequency of posting? And uh, now we kind of talk about the content. A lot of people do have great content, uh, but the frequency of posting and, uh, you know, like uh, it's a lot to kind of keep it up. Right. So how do you like kind of keep it consistent uh, day in, day out and doing that? Because I myself would just raise my hand to be like, I don't have time or the ability to keep consistent to uh, post it over there. So do you have tips for people like me? I think it depends. Okay. So if for me, from what I've seen, I'm not a social media expert, but from what I've seen, if you don't have that many followers yet, it's engaging with those people who are following you, commenting on their posts. 
adding value in some sort of way and then posting maybe once a day, which Mm -hmm. is a lot. So I would say if you're not used to posting that often, I would try to post at least three times a week to get started and then gradually post more. But it does take a lot of planning. It does take a lot of your time to be scrolling, to see what the trends are, to see what people want to see and do your research every day because it changes so frequently. You know, something that you thought was good last week could not be good this week. So it definitely takes up a lot of time. But I think one of the things that Ryan Pineda had told me because he has just taken off on all different social media platforms was that he kind of bunches his filming in a day. So if you can just knock out a few in a day, then you won't have to worry. You just have to worry about posting it throughout the week. So there's a lot of apps that help you do it. But honestly, with the algorithm, it's a little tricky when you use like a third party app, it kind of notices that and doesn't push out your content as much. I just had one post literally of me sitting on a plane, not saying anything. It's just a point of view, me being a civil engineer before now I'm a millionaire and that got 1 million views. So it's not really, there's not really like a rhyme or rhythm. I feel like it's a combination of one being consistent with your posting, however it is. But if you decide, Hey, I'm going to post three times a week in the morning at 8am, you kind of want to post to be logical with, okay, when is the best time that they're probably going to see it? Maybe in the morning when they first wake up, maybe on their lunch break, you know, I don't know that many people in the evening time is mostly for families. So if you think about when do you check your social media and kind of base your premise on that? But being consistent is the number one thing, honestly. And then engaging with people who comment on your posts or people that you follow and just really adding value. So not just the heart emojis or, you know, yeah. clapping hands. It's got to be something <laughs> integral that also relates to the post and then you adding value to that post as well. Yeah, you know, these are great tips because it's like really using social media for the social part, right. uh, not just as the media part. Well, and people get overwhelmed with just making a post, right? It's like, okay, it takes so much time to make a post. You make it, post it. Okay, now I got to get back to my webinar or I got to get back to my meetings. And it's like, you kind of got to engage before you post, post right. whatever you're going to do and engage afterwards so that it's mm-hmm. drawing people to your actual posts who might be interested. So There's, there's definitely steps to do it like the right way. But like you said, it's social media. So engagement is a really big factor in becoming in growing that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so the other thing that you kind of mentioned about is creative financing. Can you um, give us a few um, high level, like in terms of if a person who is thinking about single family investing, what are some of the creative financing way out there in order for them, someone who just started to, to get creative financing? So I never knew that you could actually do seller finance through the MLS. So there's a lot of sellers that will put it in the notes that they're open to seller finance or other ways, especially if you're buying a fixer upper. Owners know that you won't, it won't qualify for financing. So a lot of times you're able to work with them or potentially offer at their listing price if they give you certain terms. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, a lot of homes here, especially if they're built in the early 1900s that are probably paid off or probably been handed down from one generation to the next. And there's no money owed on it. They're just paying the property taxes and you can bring up 
that strategy. Hey, I know you want this number. If we could settle on some terms with a low down payment, I'll give you that the number that you're looking for, because honestly, a lot of cash buyers have to come below that because they have to take into consideration money costs, holding costs, and just the payback of that. So Mm -hmm. that's an option for you to, to offer to the seller. And a lot of sellers that I've run into haven't even considered that. I'm, Mm -hmm. I tell them, you know, you could actually make more by becoming the lender. Cause now I'm making you interest only payments throughout right. the length of this project. And mm-hmm. you're getting your, your say the last project that I got, I, we bought for 360, but I'm making seller payments to him at 2,400 a month. And mm-hmm. so he's happy with that. And right. at that time too, he had to get his finances together. He wasn't anticipating to sell the house, mm-hmm. but, um, his wife is in some medical, uh, care. And if they get that big chunk of money in, Mm -hmm. they will now have to pay like a higher premium in order for her to stay in that facility. So that's the thing that people don't think about. They're like, why would somebody, you know, why wouldn't they just want all the cash at once? It's like, there's different situations where it doesn't make sense for the seller. So Mm -hmm. in those types, I try to really see what the seller is going through or situations where it would work out. Mm-hmm. And then another way that I've gotten creative is it's called novation. And it's basically where the seller keeps the mortgage in place and you as an investor bring the renovation funds, mm-hmm. the home stays in their name the whole time you fix it up and you either split the profit at the end, or you give them a certain number and then you get whatever is rest, but you sell it to a different end buyer. So a regular home buyer, but you get paid out in the end transaction. Right, so. right. So it's almost like a service provider. The service that you provided is to actually increase the invest, making basically essentially the seller a investor, right? Which is really cool. And that's awesome. These are great like advices on creative financing. Now, how do you find these deals? Like, do you do direct mailing or do you, uh, how do you find them? A lot of times it's through referrals and most of them are pocket listings from other agents. So that's where the connections and networking comes in as Mm -hmm. well. And some of them are just referrals from people that I know or people that know what I do. And again, through social media and because I live on a small island and there's a small community here, whenever they think of, okay, somebody's in a financial struggle, then they probably will think of me or somebody in our smaller community. And that's kind of how I get majority of my leads here. But outside of here, I get them just from partnerships. Yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. And so you mentioned about you're now kind of stepping into, you know, let's kind of talk about these flips. You got them all across different states. First of all, how do you find them in all across the states? And second, how does it then change your business strategy? Because mostly all your 10 units is all local. Um, So there's a certain way to run business that way. Um, But once you go out of states, what are some of the difference versus the way you're managing them like in state? So basically, if it's out of state, I'm only the person that leverages my funding ability. Mm. So say they're a first time investor and they've never done a deal before. Mm -hmm. They can't qualify for hard money because it needs a big renovation. That's kind of where my experience and I step in to get the hard money or bring the private lender and then fund the deal that way. And then they manage the project. We keep in contact throughout the whole thing, or it's from people who I've 
met through mentorships or over the past few years who mm-hmm. just want to do a deal. You know, you get to the point where you don't yeah. necessarily need the money, but they're like, Hey, it would be good to do a deal with you. And I know, you know, you can bring some money. I'm running low on funds and let's kind of make it happen. So it yeah. happens pretty much organically, but it's through the reminder. Like I just seen, I just went to event couple months ago and they're like, Hey, are you still, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to partner JV, however I can make it work. And it's all built. Like you said, mm-hmm. initially, when I got my first private lender, it was relationship built, right? You yeah. build rapport, you show your credibility through your past projects. And now that I'm so open, like through social media, they are like, okay, she does anything like she's going to be out on blast. So mm-hmm. I think that's where people feel comfortable and okay, I'll bring her the deal and let's see how we can make this work. And mm-hmm. I told them too, it's like, if I do a deal at the level that I'm at, it has to be equity and it has to be at least 50, 50, because mm-hmm. I could be using that money to make right. myself more money on my own projects. So right. they understand. And I think with any kind of partnership, as long as you're straightforward from the beginning, there shouldn't mm-hmm. really be any confusion about what happens next. Yeah, absolutely. And then you kind of mentioned that you're kind of embarking this new venture into a multifamily. Um, how do you kind of branch that out and why multifamily? You're seeing yourself kind of transitioning or it's just additional stream of income. Yeah. So right now I own four single families and then I own a a duplex and then I bought a fourplex. So I kind of graduated, right? You do the single families Mm -hmm. first and then you get into small multifamily. And then now I'm getting into the hundred plus unit syndications. Mm -hmm. And that was actually brought to me in the beginning of this year. I was actually looking towards being a limited partner the end of last year because we had to pay so much in taxes. And so that's actually how I started even looking into syndications. It's how can I get depreciation? I, you know, it's too late in the year to try to buy anything else. What's some other ways and being connected or reaching out to my own network, getting connected with Emma Powell, and then now being a part of her syndication group is all new things to me. I'm still like reading, you know, books about syndications and I kind of just jumped in head first and that's, really how what I do I never really get stuck in analysis paralysis I'm just like you know they're like okay you got to sign up by Friday and it's Wednesday read through this 500 page you know documents about it and I was like I don't have time is this a good deal or not (laughs) you know so I'm continuously trying to read it and understand it as we go along but I think I'm just still so new it's nice to be a part of a general partnership where everybody is kind of helping each other understand it and then also we each have our roles in the company but at the same time they're more than willing to help somebody who wants to know how things are run or how everything is working. And then as we bring in limited partners, we're able to explain to them how it works. And so it's mutually beneficial, right? Because the more that I understand, the more people I can bring on to help fund the projects as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So still kind of focusing on the founding part and et cetera mm-hmm. uh, to bridge into. Now, what is your kind of midterm goal? Whatever midterm means, three years, five years, you know, I definitely see myself being a passive investor. Like my whole goal is to be, you know, 
really passive, not even know what's going on in the, just investing in syndications and bigger projects, really having financial freedom because now I do as far as income, like I definitely don't have to worry about working or paying any of my bills, but I, I'm still in the day-to-day checking emails, doing the, that kind of stuff. So right. I see myself more so being more passive in it and just not having to, I love making connections, but that not being my main source of leads. Right. So yeah. getting into the syndication space, I can see how a lot of people get into it and it's really passive for them. So of course it takes so much money because you have to put money into every deal um, that I still have to have active income coming in, but I don't really want to rely on that. I know syndications, you know, even after a couple years, you get a big chunk back, then you can put into something else. So I kind of want to keep my money flowing and be more passive. So that's what I see in the next kind of three years happening, hopefully in one year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Right. Yeah, because, because you know, by selling some of your long-term holding single family, et cetera, uh, you could have potentially used some other passive losses to, to offset some of that too. So it really plays tax efficiencies as well. Yeah. Awesome. And now our last question over here is that we know that you're a mom. And so what are you doing today to help your kids to be financially literate? So one of the things that I did recently was add a coin operated dryer to our fourplex. So we have (laughs) one washer and one dryer for everyone. And um, the dryer kept breaking. It broke down like twice last year. So even just to fix it, you know, the dryer itself is 600 to fix it ended up being 400. I was like, why don't I just buy a new one at this point? Right. Right. And so I was thinking, okay, electricity is going up. Let's just, we had to special order a coin operated dryer. And so I told my daughter, she's going to be 16 soon. I said, look, you're going to have to pay for gas. And if you want to save up to buy a car, you know, I'll buy this initial dryer for you. And every month you'll have to go by, collect the coins. And she gets to see this kind of passive income in play with her own eyes. And prior to that, she's been helping me, you know, paint when I was really active in it, paint our rentals and clean up, do cleanings in between when one tenant is moving out, clean up the property in order for the next one to move in. And so she's seen that part of like the working, the physical work. Now she gets to see actually touch money and be like, oh, okay, this is how this works with the laundry part is my mom's collecting money here and it'll always come in every month without you having to do anything. So that's kind of how I'm getting her involved in understanding finances. I got her a few books. I'm not sure if she read them, honestly, but I'm kind of incentivizing her little by little because I don't want to push her into it and then her, you know, not like it or have some sort of hard feelings about investing because it's not something she wanted to do. I kind of want to just show her little steps and then have it take it upon herself to really want to learn more. But I got to think back to at 16. I mean, I was, I was working at 15 for a videographer, just editing videos. And then I worked, you know, at the mall. So for me, I've always been gung ho on earning your own money, but it's hard when you come from that past and you try to teach your kids, but they have everything. So they don't have any real incentive to work hard for money. So that's, that's kind of just honestly where I'm at with trying to navigate 
how do I teach her the importance of money or working for money or passive income when she doesn't really need to? And so I don't just give her things. I make her earn a lot of things through doing her chores or different types of other, you know, labor work. But I also don't want to focus on like, you got to work for your money. It's like, no, there's other ways where you can invest like this dryer for the next one that you buy, you know, you'll have to take whatever you've saved. And then now each month you'll be getting paid back. And then eventually it will cash flow for you after, you know, you've paid yourself off. So that's kind of how I'm trying to teach her at an older age about finances. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sasha, for uh, the interview today. Um, Can you tell us how does people get in contact with you? My main source of connections is Instagram. That's the one that I understand right now. I do have TikTok and YouTube, but I'm just getting into it. So in Instagram, at invest with Zasha, Z-A-S-H-A. There are a lot of, you know, spam accounts out there too. So just be aware of that. But I try, I post, I'm going to start, July was the month that I'm starting to post twice a day. I post, you know, I just posted about the buying the laundry dryer. I try to stay in tune with what I'm doing weekly or as I progress and then give people tips about what how they can do things as well or just like partnering who I am now you don't have to start off you know trying to figure out everything on your own yes you're gonna have to give up some equity but at the same time you're gonna be partnered with an experienced investor who can kind of catch you or bring you along and have that safety net so there's all kinds of tips and things that I share on there and would love to connect with your audience and add value that's awesome. And then definitely check her out on the Instagram. We're going to put that post. If you're watching YouTube right now, we're going to put that post in the YouTube channel. And then if you're on the podcast, then we'll put that in the show notes over there as well. Well, thank you so much for your time, Zasha, today. And uh, this wraps up another episode of 10,000 Roots of Financial Independence. 